Well, what a great morning, <clears throat> as it should be. Uh, this morning we celebrate the greatest day the world has ever known, and so it should be uh, something very special. It's a story that we're all familiar with. In fact, people throughout history have, but really truly only understood by a few. That was true in the time of Christ, and I believe it's still true even in our world today. And that's because everybody comes to the empty tomb with a different perspective. And our perspective is revealed ultimately in how we live our life. See, some take the view of the the skeptic. It's those who say, if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. (laughs) These are my glass half empty friends. They're reluctant to embrace what is right because they're so overwhelmed by all that is wrong. They can't see the reality of what could be because of the burden of what is. We are the ones who are praying for a miracle when that miracle is staring us right in the face. Still others don't even get that far. You have no hope for a miracle because quite frankly, you don't believe you deserve one. There have been so many mistakes in your life that you have moved yourself beyond the boundaries of forgiveness. You might believe something is true. You're just not convinced that it's true for you. And finally, there are those who do approach the empty tomb and that's where your faith comes alive. You don't need a a long explanation or some sound apologetic. In fact, You believe even if you don't have all the proof. You're committed even if you don't completely understand. Your heart is primed for faith no matter how big that leap may be. These are the ones that the world calls fools for the sake of Christ. And you gladly accept that label. Because if what Jesus says isn't true, there really is no satisfying alternative. Everybody comes with their own perspective. It's true at the time of Christ. It's true in our world today. And I believe it was true when you walked in here this morning. My prayer is that as we look together at that resurrection story, that even though we come from different perspectives, that we walk out of here with a common conviction that Jesus is alive. And it makes all the difference in the world. Let's go to the Lord together and pray. God, we come to you this morning, as we do each and every week, but today especially, wanting to see and be reminded and to be convinced of what is true in such magnitude that we can't possibly think of seeing life the same again. And so help us come to that understanding that even your disciples came to and may we live a life consistent with theirs we pray this in your name amen if you would turn to john chapter 20 john chapter 20 and i want you to watch the portrayal of these events as john records them in verses 1 through 18 so chris if you can run that please
came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabunai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, that's our story. That's what we celebrate today. Uh, the events as John records them are very characteristic of his gospel. If you were to look at all the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put them together, you would have a very vivid portrayal of what took place. But John gives us only the details that he feels are important for us to come to a certain understanding. There's a point that he intends to make, and so he gives us only that which brings us to that conclusion. It's not manipulative, it's 
strategic. It's purposeful because he goes on to explain that. Look at verse 30 in chapter 20. He says, many other signs. Therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, his account. But he says, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John's gospel was written with a specific, explicit intent so that your faith may come alive. In our passage, John highlights three people. Mary Magdalene, John himself, and Peter. Mary Magdalene was the first. We know that there were other women, at least three probably more with her, but John highlights only Mary. We also know that all the disciples were made aware, but he only points to Peter and himself and their response. And so I want us to to look at these three people individually to see perhaps what John might have had for us to understand. The first is Mary Magdalene. I believe she's our skeptic. The details about this woman are are somewhat limited. We learn from Luke's gospel that she was one of a, a group of women who followed Jesus throughout his ministry and provided financial support from their own personal well-being. We know that Mary was first introduced to Jesus when he cast out seven demons from her. Now, we don't know the, the details of her afflictions, but we can assume from that description that she was in a very dark place. But when she met Jesus... And he called out her name. She was delivered from the dominion of darkness that ruled her. She was introduced to the freedom of following Christ and to live in his light. And she did. She was a a faithful companion of Jesus from that point on all the way up to the cross. See, by the time we get to the crucifixion, there were a lot of people who once claimed to follow Jesus who by now have fallen away. But not Mary. She was there at the foot of the cross when Jesus took his last breath. She was there when they took his body from that cross. And she was there when she placed that body into the tomb. See, even when Jesus' own disciples had gone their own way, Mary was still there. John tells us that Mary went back to the tomb on the day after the Sabbath. You see, Jesus died so close to the Sabbath, what the Jewish and what Scripture calls the day of preparation, that they didn't have time to do all the customary things that they normally do when someone is buried. They wrapped Him in linen, placed Him in the tomb. Meanwhile, Mary and these other women prepared the spices that they would then take and anoint the body as was customary. John tells us that when they get to the tomb, he says that the stone was taken away. Now, the ladies have been talking on their way. We know from the other gospel account, how are we going to move that huge stone so that we can enter in? But when, we, when they got there, John says that it wasn't just cracked so that somebody could get in. It was moved completely away. And so the immediate response was something 
terrible has happened. Mary made a quick conclusion that the grave has been robbed. That they have taken the body of Jesus. She was not able to embrace what could be. Because she was so overwhelmed by what was. Her immediate conclusion was the worst case scenario. Even when the angels appeared and asked why she was weeping, she went on to explain what she had determined to be the case, and that was somebody has stolen the body. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. If you all of a sudden were in the presence of angels, would it not cross your mind that perhaps they know something that you haven't yet figured out? But not Mary. She's so convinced of this worst case scenario, she tries to explain to angels what she believed to be true. Even when she heard the voice, which she mistook as the gardener, she went as far as to suggest that maybe he was the one that was responsible. She's our skeptic. But I want you to notice when everything came to light for her, It was one word. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. See, I believe she recognized the voice and the name that had called her out of darkness and introduced her to the light. And once again, he is inviting her to see things from his perspective. She came to the tomb a skeptic. But that is where her faith came alive. Now, that's Mary. But then there's Peter. He was the one who stands ashamed. Now, Peter is the disciple that I think we most relate to because he's probably most like us. He was a fisherman from Galilee, which I truly believe in today's vernacular. That's the same thing as saying a farmer from West Texas, right? Because one of the reasons I say that is we know from the gospel account that he was known by his accent. (laughs) Just like if you go outside of Texas, somebody will say, are you from Texas? Well, yes, I am. Right? Well, it's the same thing with Peter. He was known by his accent. He was unsophisticated, a hardworking, good old boy. And he met Jesus while on the job. He had been fishing all night with his companions, and they had caught nothing. And Jesus shows up and says, cast out your nets one more time. Now, I believe the only reason Peter agreed to do that was to show that man what a silly idea that was. Because he knew as a fisherman by trade that if you've gone all night, one more cast is not going to get it. But it did. So much so that the nets began to break. And when Peter hauled in that catch of fish, He went to the shore, dropped his nets, and began to follow Jesus. See, he and John were kind of in that inner circle of the disciples, meaning that they witnessed things that none of the other disciples ever saw. He was bold in his faith, but fragile in his obedience. Quick to step out of the boat and walk on water, but easily distracted by the waves. Peter really was a leader among the disciples. And he also walked in very close fellowship with Jesus. Which was why he was so ashamed. 
because when Jesus needed him most, Peter denied that he ever knew him. Not once, but three times. So when Peter and John heard the news from Mary, it says that John ran on ahead of Peter. Now, this is just conjecture on my part, but I wonder if Peter let that be. Because if Jesus was really there, how could he ever look him in the face? But seeing the empty tomb, the scripture tells us he didn't hesitate. Just like Peter, he goes right in. And when he does, he notices that the linen is laying there and the face cloth is folded. And immediately he says, something's not right. It'd be like somebody breaking into your house and finding, and you go in and find that your bed's made and your laundry's folded, right? <laughs> something's not right here. And that was Peter's conclusion as well. The only thing we know from Scripture is that Peter takes all this in and then he goes back to his home. That's all we know. I suspect he was rehearsing his failure over and over in his mind. I believe when he saw what he did in the grave, he knew the story of Jesus wasn't over. But I believe... He thought he had been written out of the script by his own hand. I bet the guilt of his denial was truly overwhelming. Luke's account tells us that Jesus appears to all the disciples, but he makes the point to explain that he went to Peter specifically, one-on-one, a personal visit from the risen Lord to his disciple, Peter. Jesus went to Peter in order to prove that there are no boundaries to his love. The heart of repentance always ushers in God's redemptive hand. You see, Peter, I believe, knew the truth of the resurrection. He just was not convinced that that was true for him. Until Jesus extended the hand of forgiveness. And that's when his faith came alive. And then there's John. I believe he's the one who's quick to believe. In reality, I don't think Peter and John were really all that different. In fact, we know that they were the best of friends. They were in business together as fishermen. I think John was probably just as bold and boisterous as was Peter, just not so quick on the trigger. Like Peter was. John and his brother Andrew were called sons of thunder. I think there's a reason for that. You may remember one account where John and Andrew tell Jesus after the Samaritans wouldn't let him preach in their town. He said, Jesus, would you like for us to call down fire of judgment upon these people? (laughs) Man, that's a pretty bold statement. Number one, to think that you could actually call down fire from heaven. And number two, that you actually have the right to be the judge. Sons of thunder. But even though he was zealous, he was even more loyal. Because while Peter was denying that he ever knew Jesus, John was willing to stay by his side throughout the trial. Now, think about that for a second. Because that's like somebody being convicted of murder. And you being willing to stand with them, taking the risk that they would assume perhaps that you have been an accomplice to the crime. 
But for John, his loyalty overruled his fear. And when Mary went to tell Peter, I believe specifically, John was there with him. I think consoling his friend. And so they both ran towards the tomb. John was eager to arrive at the tomb, reluctant to go in, until Peter ran past him. And then he too joined in. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 8. Talking about John, he says, So the other disciples who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and this is John, he saw and he believed. You see, he did not need to see the body. In fact, he didn't completely understand. I believe he heard and understood what Jesus had said in his ministry. That he would die and rise again. And the absence of that body was all John needed to see to know that it was true. He needed no other proof for his faith to come alive. See, three people with three unique perspectives All who come to a common conclusion. And I think as we enter into this story this morning ourselves. And we remind ourselves of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and that empty tomb. I suggest we all need to go back. And we need to decide for ourselves what we believe is true. And then look at our life and see if it reflects our answer. What is your personal conviction so we need to understand that the bible says that the wages of sin is death that through one man adam sin entered the world death through sin and so death spread to all men the wages of sin is death that's our debt the bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins but when christ came he made it clear He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He tells his disciples, he who believes in me will live. Even if he dies. And that's only possible if he pays a debt that we could not pay. And that's exactly what the scripture says. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You see, that idea of ransom intends to communicate to us that he paid a price that allows us to be set free from the slavery of sin. That's the ransom that he paid. But not only did he pay a debt that we could not pay, he lived a life that we could not live. Because the Scripture tells us, he who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. By faith, we receive His forgiveness. By faith, we are made alive in Christ. And the resurrection is what we celebrate as the exclamation point to this truth that that tells the world that Jesus Christ has the power over sin and death. And salvation is found in Him alone. As Paul tells the Ephesians, but God, being rich 
in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Chances are we've heard this story several times. We live in Christian America where this is repeated over and over again. But yet, why are we so reluctant to embrace and live this life to the fullest? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question. But let me give you one that I think is significant for us to consider. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not all that great if our sin is not all that bad. See, that's the culture we live in. It's a a watered-down depravity. Sin is relative, and there is no absolute truth by which we are all held accountable. Many would say that the Bible is important, but it's just increasingly irrelevant over time because things change. Contemporary Christianity allows for a profession of faith without any significant interruption to our preferred lifestyle, and that's a lie. And I want you to think about that as it relates to Mary. Why do you think that she was so devoted? What, what made her leave what she was doing, following Jesus throughout his ministry, going to the cross, taking him down, placing him in the tomb, and going there the day after, two days after, to see him risen, embracing him, and turning to faith? Why? Why was she so devoted? I believe it's because she understood the depths from which she had been rescued. Because our gratitude is always equal to our devotion. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 7. Let me just show you an account here that I think Jesus uses to prove this point. Luke chapter 7, verse 40. says, beginning in verse 40, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. He says, A certain money lender had two debtors, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, would love him more? Simple question. Simon answered and said, Well, that's an easy answer. I suppose the one who forgave him more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman who had anointed his feet with perfume, he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Our devotion is always equal to our gratitude. 
our response of faith is, is equal to the magnitude of our understanding of His love. Now, I say that knowing that in today's society, an extreme response of faith is unfavorable. It's okay to have a conviction. Just don't get all crazy about it, right? And why? What, what do we call people who have a faith and they take it too far? Extremists, right? And we all know what comes to mind when we hear that ter- term. It's okay to have a belief, but just keep it to yourself. There's a watered-down depravity. There's a, a watered-down faith. It's like telling a doctor, I know you've found the cure for cancer, but don't get all excited about it and start telling everyone. It's silly, isn't it? Well, the same is true for us. I believe an extreme response is the only right response to the message of the gospel. But let me explain the difference between what we see in our world today so negatively portrayed by the extremists and what we are called to as Christians. See, the extremists are out to carry out God's judgment. They've taken it upon themselves to level the score. They're the ones who are going to do things on behalf of God that cause death and destruction. They see it as their job to set things right. But the Christians are called to something different. We are not called to judgment, but to carry out God's love. See, one is set on vengeance. The other on mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember whenever I saw the images of the planes flying into the buildings during 9-11. And probably like you, one of the questions I asked was, how could anybody ever do something like that. And the image of God that I get from that kind of an action is one of ruthlessness, one of anger, one of vengeance. Let me suggest to you that when people see our lives, it should actually cause them to ask the exact same question. Why would you ever do something like that? But this time, it's for different reasons altogether. Why would you go to Mexico And go to a village that nobody cares about and knows the name of and provide free medical care to people you've never met. Why would you do that? Why would you give gifts and serve meals to people that you don't even know? Why would you do that? Last week we heard all kinds of testimonies about marriages that have been restored. And the world, I promise you, would hear those stories and say, why would you do that? After what they did? Just move on. Why would you do something like that? Well, as Christians, we have an answer. The image of God that we portray is one of love. It's one of hope. It's one of forgiveness. It's one of grace. Anything less than extreme is inadequate. See, we live in an age where there's an epidemic of apathy we routinely celebrate year after year this day and i think within us there's something that stirs our hearts that says this is right and good and true and then the world waters it down by the time we get out of the doors 
The resurrection should remind us that this life is ultimately not what we're living for. It should be a commitment that really is something beyond what we see here on earth. Like John, we need to be fully committed even if we don't completely understand. We need to know that that God is true and what He said is trustworthy and He's faithful. We need to know that His forgiveness is complete, that His love has no boundaries, that His mercies are new every morning. We need to have our life centered on the hope of Christ. It's like Paul tells the Corinthians, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of people to be most pitied. But then he goes on and says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. His point is this. Since I know this is true, then my life should be radically different because of it. And so let me ask you, what difference does it make in your life? If this really is the best news that the world has ever heard, would it not be true that it should make all the difference in the world? And why in the world wouldn't we proclaim that message with boldness and conviction? Jesus is alive. And we need to be convinced, as John was, as we read in that passage in in verses 30 and 31, that Jesus is the Christ, the living Son of the living God. And if you believe in Him, there is life in His name. And that should make all the difference in the world. I pray that although we came this morning with a variety of perspectives, that we share a common conviction that Jesus is alive. There's life in His name. He's a God of grace and hope and forgiveness. And we should be radically different because of it. And I hope that you tell somebody about that which you believe to be true. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder and the perspectives that we have through Mary and Peter and John. I think probably for all of us, something about each of them we can relate with because their story is our story. And I pray that their hope is our hope. That like them, when we come to this time where we look into the empty tomb, that it is the place where our faith comes alive. The place where we put our trust in you. The place where we live radically different from that point on. That we are extreme in our faith. But extreme in the sense of carrying out your mercy and not your judgment. Presenting an image of love and not vengeance. Of hope and forgiveness and grace. Because we know there is a day when you will come. And that the judgment that is to be done is only to be carried out by your hand alone. Until then, may we let people know that it is your grace by which we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it is a gift from God. We celebrate that truth this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, that we pray. And all the people said... Amen. Have a great day.